0: There's definitely decoupling happening in terms of tech. And I actually was really skeptical of decoupling until this year. And I'm like, wow, you know, you're really going to be seeing it. But on the other hand, the financial services sector is opening up much more this year than before. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dissecting
1: the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. My name is Bernard Liang, and it's that time of the year again. I want to review the state of affairs with China. Who better than Shai Oster, the Asia Bureau Chief, from the information to do this review with me. And this is our sixth year. Hi, Shai. How are you doing? Hi. It's hard to believe it's already been six years. My goodness. Yes. And we last discussed what happened to the tech giants in China. So it is always great to have you back to talk about the state of China in 2021. So I think the first thing we want to talk about is what do you get right and wrong about your predictions for the year?
0: So I looked at what the predictions that we wrote on at the information and my average of the grades would be kind of a B. First of all, we had no idea that the regulatory tsunami would obliterate entire sectors of the industry. But as I spoke, I spoke to one banking analyst who said, this has been a career destroying year. So at least my career is so far not destroyed. But OK, so I, we predicted at the information regarding Asia that. Billions of dollars will be spent for the online grocery, the community group buying sector. Sing Sheng Yoshuan, Nice Tuan, Didi Ju when Sing went into or now Didi Global and, and Mae Tuan. And we thought that there was going to be a lot of M&A. Well, kind of right. Billions of dollars were spent, but then the government antitrust crackdown <laughs> didn't quite obliterate the sector, but changed the rules of the game dramatically. We predicted Alibaba, for example, would buy Nice Tuan. It did invest, led a 750 million investment round in March. But the crackdown on community group buying and price dumping and all that stuff kind of thrown cold water on that whole industry. So we gave ourselves a B. We said the Byte Administration would drop Trump's threat to ban TikTok. Remember that, but we said that TikTok would still pursue a joint venture with Oracle and Walmart in order to leverage Walmart's expertise in e-commerce uh, and retail. And also, we thought that I thought that Walmart might be a back entrance, a back way in for TikTok you know, Byte Dance into India. Well, Walmart owns Flipkart. Well, we were right about the Trump ban being dropped by the Biden administration, or they revamped it. So there still is an investigation, but clearly the, the ban is not on the front burner for them. And as far as the merger or, or uh, sale, we were completely wrong on that one. TikTok is doing fine just by itself. It's also begun to go into e-commerce, dance both within China, and we're beginning to see signs of it overseas. So we gave ourselves uh, a C minus on that one. And then we said that as part of China's forceful push to contain the power of big tech platforms, China will use its new anti-monopoly law to force Ant Group to divest major parts of its business. And we'll start scrutinizing Tencent's social network as well. You know, we gave ourselves a B. I think we should actually give ourselves a higher grade. So Ant was kind of dismantled and undergoing major restructuring led by the government. But we didn't anticipate just how sweeping the, the crackdown would be. And I think 10 cents, a WeChat hasn't actually been as much of a target as I expected it to be, but the gaming sector has certainly been severely curtailed, right? This is the year where they basically said kids can't play more than three hours a week and only on weekends, which is those are your new users, uh, and if kids lose the habit of playing video games, you won't have adults to play video games. So that's really bad news for, for Tencent and for all the video game companies that sell into China or, or produce in China. And we also, one thing we had no idea was going to happen was the IPO fiasco. Somebody described it like, it's okay to commit suicide, but Didi committed suicide with a shotgun and everybody was a bystander in back, shotgun in the mouth. It was a pretty graphic analogy, but but I see the point that they were trying to make, and that like the collateral damage from the DD IPO, I think that's really what marks the year, even more so than the crackdown on online education, which in one fell swoop obliterated billions of dollars of value. But it's the DD crackdown, uh, the forced delisting, that has really burnt people. Truly, we did not predict point five trillion dollars worth of market cap have been wiped out just from china tech companies. I mean who who saw that coming? You know, you remember the chest dumping in the beginning of the year where China was ahead of the world and recovering from COVID and e-commerce was booming and Alibaba. And like you look at you look at the share prices, everybody was like soaring, getting more valuable. I think the Tencent was at one point more valuable than Facebook and Apple. I forget the specifics. But in any case, everyone was doing great. Second half of the year, you know, it's like it's like dive bombing share prices, just screaming down from the air to much more modest levels. And God only knows how this is going to play out because the last set of earning calls that I heard was the first time you're really hearing the sort of more storm clouds ahead for Tencent and Alibaba, talking about slowing slowing growth for e-commerce. This 1111 was the slowest growth on record for Alibaba, I believe. Tencent warning about slowing ad sales, just a general softening. You know, again, the color from from the market, at least on the ec- on the public equity side. There's a real feeling that you just like once burned, twice shy. Like this is three times and we're just idiots. Like people are feeling like they just can't go back to the China trough, right? Yes, people are bargain hunting and there might be some good deals. But for the big players with big money who have like mandates to support a pension fund, China's beginning to look like a very risky play in the public equities. Private, you know, we can talk about that later. But yeah, I mean, but who, who could have predicted DD Global? Really, who could have said that like, yes, one of the world's, I think it's the world's second most valuable startup or third, depending on how you count it, would do an IPO despite being warned not to on the day before the key anniversary of the Communist Party and quietly slipped themselves a $3 billion stock bonus. Like who would have predicted something so outrageous, right? Like ripped from the pages of some bad Netflix script.
1: I, I can tell you this. If you have read every S1 prospectus for every Chinese tech company, regulatory risk is always inside. It's just that no one had taken it seriously. And suddenly, one false zoom just crossed through. I think people are going to read their business plans much more careful now, especially on the regulatory
0: risk side. But then again, like it becomes sort of boilerplate. It always was in there. Like no one ever hid the fact that VIEs were in a gray area, but it'd been 20 years. VIEs being the legal structure that's used by tech companies in particular to circumvent the Chinese government's ban on investment in internet enterprises where you set up uh, a series of structures where foreigners actually invest in a company in the Cayman Islands or elsewhere offshore that has a contractual agreement with something onshore to get the economic benefits. Now this is pioneered by, I believe, was it Sina? And it's never been officially legal But it was in this gray area that everybody used, Tencent used it, Alibaba used it. Billions of dollars have been built on this shaky foundation. And every once in a while, somebody would put out a report saying, oh my God, VIE structure, VIE. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we know, but like Chinese government needs the investment. It's so far so good, right? And so even if you put in all the regulatory risks, like, yes, we operate in a completely opaque environment where the government could tomorrow, it just becomes like wallpaper, right? Until
1: kaboom. I thought I should give you an A plus for the end financial piece because you did mention last year that Huawei and ZFB is definitely going to be spin off into separate entities with the banks involved.
0: Yes, well, I've been shouting for a long time. So the funny thing is that, like, I feel like a, you know a broken clock is accurate twice a day. Alibaba and Tencent are national infrastructure. The AliPay and WePay are as important, or equally important, or maybe even more important than the banks. And there is no way that the government's going to be okay with that. I've been saying that for years. I was like, "This is not good. This is not good." But then anti pre IPO, like a lot of smart money was saying, "Whatever, it's worth 150 billion. Whatever ridiculous valuation." I thought, "Okay, I'm the idiot, right?" Like, and then again with WeChat, I'm like, WeChat is more powerful than all the state carriers. No one cares in China if they're on China Mobile or China Netcom or whatever, China Unicom, as long as I have my WeChat, right? So WeChat is the communications infrastructure. It's just like a highway or trains or electricity. These are all national infrastructure assets that, of course, is going to be uncomfortable if they're in the hands of a private company. And to me, it was like inevitable that this was going to happen. And I'm still waiting for the shoe to drop on WeChat. I think there's more to come. So we have already covered the Chinese tech giants from Alibaba
1: to ByteDance all being regulated by the Chinese government in early October this year. They have actually been reprimanded with their anti-competitive behavior, slapped with record fines, you know, and all the CEOs are now moving upstream to their new jobs called executive chairman positions. Will we have a clearer picture of what is the fate of all these Chinese tech giants going into 2022?
0: So are you talking in terms of the
1: actual founders or in terms of the companies? In terms of the companies, the founders, because everyone seems to have gone into defensive positions now. And I think it's just business as usual. And people are looking for new ways to try to circumvent whichever regulation that comes up. But the elephant is still in the room, right? that yeah. no one knows
0: the, what's going to happen yeah. to us next year. There's a couple of threads here. One is a lot of the leaders of these companies have stepped back, but they've done it in different ways. And I still don't kind of buy it. Like, So the broad conventional wisdom is, that, oh, they step back because it's too hot to be both rich and powerful. So you have to choose. Do you want to be powerful or do you want to be rich? And so these founders have stepped back. Colin Huang at Pinduoduo has reduced his share stake. He has given up super majority voting rights. Or sorry, uh, he has super rights. So he no, used to. So he no longer controls the board, has no title, still a significant shareholder, but greatly reduced. At Kuaishou, the guy stepped down, wasn't the founder, so different situation. And then at ByteDance, you know, we actually just wrote a piece about how Jiang Yiming, he stepped away from his role as chairman and CEO But he still effectively controls the company through his control of the voting rights. And also, he's still very much involved in sort of long-term strategy, vision of the company, and still participates in calls. With Pinduoduo, I get it. Colin Huang was at one point, like, becoming the richest man in China when Pinduoduo was doing well. Obviously, that's its share price has really taken a beating this year, which is, I think, perhaps unfair, or overreaction. But among among the tech giants, people in particular soared very high and this has fallen quite low. But so, okay, so stress on Colin Huang. And, and from sources there, I know that even even ahead of time, they were getting anxious about his high profile and his wealth. There, there was, it was sort of like, uh-oh, we need to go low profile kind of vibe to the company. I mean, if you notice their positioning now, let's open up their Wikipedia page. It says something quite hilarious. Let me see if I can find this. Okay, so Pinduoduo, what do you think of Pinduoduo? Let me read what it has, and I'm sure this is their edit, because there's no way someone else did this. Is the largest agriculture-focused technology platform in China. It has created a platform that connects farmers and distributors. Say what? Agriculture? I, I Wait, I, I you know, the prospectus talked about something like the Disneyland of commerce and like entertainment and shopping. So they paddled really hard to like get in line with the new ethos, the new policy in, in China. Agriculture? Okay, I don't quite. All right, fine. But uh, so fine. So I see how that works. At ByteTense, I'm confused by... What's the point of stepping away from all these roles if it's done, as some observers say, to appease the Chinese leaders when they know that he still holds the super voting rights? They know that he's still involved in the company. So I don't quite understand what the kabuki theater there is about. Like, what's the point? I I think I think it might actually be that he doesn't want to be involved in the day to day, but just wants to oversee the the longer term vision. Uh, I was even asking, like, is this a question of legal liability? Because he's no longer on the board of directors and the lawyers that I spoke to said, well, given that he still has these voting rights, he would effectively, if there was a situation, a court would still find him legally uh, a responsible individual. So I don't quite get what's going on there, to be frank. I think it's, it's sort of confusing to me if it fits in line with this broader like tech under assault kind of theme in China. But if
1: I circle back and just look at companies, for example, Tencent Alibaba definitely affected. Bike dance to a certain extent. Pinduoduo, I don't know where the pivot is getting into. There are also other companies like NetEase. And of course, all the rest of the, some of the unicorns in the education tech sector has already been obliterated. So I guess my question now is, where are the tech companies going to be? Is there going to be a Chinese tech sector still I mean, I can think about
0: Huawei, right? Yeah, right, right, right. So Huawei got decimated by the US, right? Jeez, Louise. Okay, so let's list the things that have been hit. Online education, real estate, I believe. We think that online e-brokers are coming next. Games have been hit. Celebrities, right? Online celebrity, that whole part. And now basically this live streaming, which was a bright spot. She evaded $200 million of tax evasion. Was it Via is her name? the 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 taobao live streamer who was just uh, busted this week unbelievable how much money was being made if you could evade taxes on 210 million us dollars okay so oh oh sorry i forgot also the community group buying was also dinged did i miss any sectors fintech is definitely gone with really. yeah fintech yeah exactly like uh payday loans peer-to-peer even earlier was that was gone Okay. So what's left? Hard tech. So that would be like semiconductors, real biotech, food tech, automation, enterprise software, efficiency, cloud, SaaS is still doing well. So anything that helps the real economy is still okay. Stuff that's just arguably stupid stuff that wastes people's time and makes them spend money frivolously, that's bad, right? Live streaming is all about like impulse buying, one could argue, right? I'm sure there's real value and like da-da-da-da, but so but anything that you could point to as having like a real impact on the quote-unquote real economy that will fit in with the broader themes of common prosperity, right? That's the new slogan, we'll do okay. Oh, and and by the way, Semiconductors is also a complete an utter excrement show. You saw the latest now with it, China has had such a hard time directing, building its national champions with, with semiconductors. It's a hard business to break. But so the smaller startups looking at like that kind of technology, I think will do well. And those sectors are all OK. The problem is going to be where can you exit? Now, some of the investors I talked to are like, yeah, don't worry about it. Like if I'm early stage, like I'm looking at five to 10 years down the road. And who knows what's the world will look like five to 10 years down the road from now. Just as five years ago, you wouldn't have predicted we are where we are now. But right now, like if you have a company that's pre-IPO, like you have a problem. Like You can't list in the US. It's getting increasingly challenging even to list in Hong Kong. You look at some of these national champions for AI and machine vision and facial recognition. They're having a tough time listing even in, within China. I believe it's E2 wanted to list on the new board in Shanghai, but didn't get approval. So now it's going to list in Hong Kong. Megv is the face plus plus. They were going to list in the US, then in Hong Kong. Now I believe their application is pending for Shanghai listing. I think on the starboard, I'm not, but like, where do you exit? Right. So that's the problem is that like, you might have something that's a business that you can build that will generate potentially revenue that at least you can say, okay, This is green-lighted, we're safe. But then where do you exit this thing? We saw the recent
1: drop of 65% in fundraising for China's venture investors. What is driving this drop?
0: I think nervousness. I think people are scared because there's uncertainty right now about what the future holds. There's a real, the broad thesis, China emerging economy, yada, yada. Yeah, I guess so. It still holds. And even those sectors that I identified that are in line with the government's goals of common prosperity, which by the way, not a bad agenda, right? Like, okay, I can stand behind that. But it's just been so unclear what's gonna get hit. You could argue that online education was part of common prosperity. It was a way for people to get ahead, to get their kids into a better college. Now they can't, right? So it was like, okay, yes, maybe it became a rat race, but aren't, you know anything at excess can become a problem. So how do you identify what's gonna be safe? I should caveat that that fall represents what pre And can track and they rely on public disclosures and VC funds voluntary disclosures, public public filing and voluntary disclosure. Still, the trend line is, is true. Trend line, and and it's such a steep fall that it's definitely true. Definitely big American and Western investors that would put their money, you know, be the limited partners in these venture capital funds, are nervous. They're looking around and saying, like, dang, what happened? We had our money in, I don't know, VIP Kid or Yuan Fudao or whatever tutoring app. And that has gone to zilch. Like they've had, I'm sure there have been massive write-offs. And it's kind of like, ow, you know, China, I believe in it long-term. I think you guys got to work some stuff out. Southeast Asia is looking pretty good these days or India or wherever else. Plus, it's just getting so complicated, like, okay, even if we invest in it, how are we going to get a return? How are we going to get our money out? You've got this other deadline in the U.S. where the SEC, I don't know what you call it, there's the, the train coming at, at us from the distance and the SEC requiring these tougher audit requirements, right? Working papers from Chinese companies and effectively the deadline would be 2025 and the SEC and Chinese security regulators are negotiating because Chinese companies can't disclose certain audit papers because of Chinese regulations so there's this clear problem ahead i always talk i jokingly like the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund or the Idaho Library Union or i don't know what whatever you are like you're looking to allocate your capital and you're like i know i got to allocate and i have a mandate for like emerging markets but like dang, China's just looking rough, right? Like I just got dinged on all this stuff. So when somebody comes to you and says, give me money, you're like, oh, you got something else for me? So maybe the question I
1: should be asking is, what impact does it have for the startup and venture capital scene? That means, is it going to go pre-boom times as in emerging market? That's the question number one. The question number two is, does that also mean that we will not see any more record valuations in China? You know, there's always this lizard brain VC way of thinking, oh, China is a big market, three times the internet population, economies of scale, all those lizard brain type jargon coming out. There's still
0: a lot of dry powder. Again, leaning on frequent, I think they had like 20 billion or more in dry powder that they track. So there's a lot of money that people raised earlier that's still waiting to be deployed. Another caveat is that their tracking of funding can be lagging because sometimes they might backfill in like six months. But I think it's such a steep decline that I can't imagine it's gonna... And plus, it's you can see that's a trend line, right? So I think overall... What's going to happen is the smaller companies or the tier two are going to have a hard time raising capital, but there's going to be a flight to quality. So if you're a bike dance, then when you go to raise money, people will run to you because they're not going to take a risk on something smaller or, or unknown. It's a juggernaut. Also, ByteDance is big globally. It's not just exposure to China, it's exposure to TikTok, which is a global brand. I think the first Chinese company to challenge the company formerly known as Facebook and Google. And so they'll definitely still command a premium and you know everybody will be tripping over themselves to put money into that. I think other robotics What's also interesting is that Chinese companies in, in the B2B space, in the enterprise space, in the automation space, in the software space, that are, are looking at a global market, not just the China market. And I think they might still, if they're good, still command the premiums. But you won't see dozens of unicorns being created, but you still will see, at the end of the day, like it still is a massive economy with growth opportunities and you know good companies being built, but it's just going to be a flight to quality. And I say quality, we think it's quality until it turns out like the accountant is lying or whatever, right? Theranos is of the world all over the place. But I definitely think that there still is viable business opportunities, viable investments, and there still will be capital, but you won't see it as broad-based.
1: But that comes to the Chinese economy moving forward. How will the Chinese economy evolve? Is it going to turn insular or expanding towards Asia Pacific or the rest of the world?
0: There's definitely decoupling happening in terms of tech. And I actually was really skeptical of decoupling until this year. And I'm like, wow, you know, you're really going to be seeing it. But on the other hand, the financial services sector is opening up much more this year than before, both in terms of Chinese companies, so China allowing foreign banks to set up wholly owned investment banks in China for the first time. The stock connects are being opened further and further, both in terms of Chinese investing, buying stocks in Hong Kong and foreigners being allowed to buy shares on the mainland. And so weirdly at this time, the financial services are being more and more integrated as the tech universe is being more and more decoupled. So these are very contradictory forces and I'm not quite sure how that dynamic is gonna play out. As an aside, you see the whole issue with the real estate Evergrand happening is that you're seeing domestic policy about lending having a global impact on offshore bonds. An example of how the Chinese economy now is much more integrated. The global economy is still isolated because of capital controls, but compared to say five years ago, even much more integrated. So it's difficult to figure out how that's going to that dynamic will play out. Now, then again, in terms of Chinese economies and companies integrating into the world, again the hard tech definitely decoupling. Huawei, the CEM, like just like their their cell phone business is gone because of the sanctions. However, Chinese Software startups are now looking global from day one and doing well global day one. So there's actually this opposite force of integration. So I don't know which one will win. Even Alibaba has restructured itself now with an eye towards global markets. Because what's ironically what's happening because the Chinese market is becoming, it used to be if anything, internet would grow because every year there'd be like 100 million more people using the internet, just like in India, Right. So that growth now, internet, it's a saturated market. The economy is slowing down. So like the, the natural place to grow is overseas. And a great example of that, that would be Shein, right? This is a Chinese company that has no domestic footprint. You cannot buy Xi'in in China. I'm sure you can through Taobao or whatever, right? There's always a way. But this is an example of a company that's like, well, why compete with Taobao like or whatever? Forget about it. We know how to sell stuff online to Americans brilliantly, by the way. And there's there's these really strong conflicting opposing forces of actually greater integration because of the companies from the ground up and also policy in terms of the financial sector being opened up and a very strong impulse on both, both sides for decoupling. American politicians are angry at the investors and in tech companies that have helped build China's strength. Like, why is American pension money going to make dual-use technology. That's
1: the sentiment out of DC. Then the question I would be asking then is, what are the danger signs that we would need to watch out for in the Chinese economy? Because it has such a conflicting signals
0: going on both sides. So the Chinese economy is a weird beast because it still is a command economy. The real estate crisis is a policy decision. The government decided like, enough, free lunch is over, moral hazard, we're cutting off lending. And Great, people have been arguing that, like, oh, this unfettered borrowing has to stop, and like this over-reliance on real estate as the source for wealth and local government revenue is just an unsustainable event. And I'm very surprised that they're making that policy decision now, ahead of this key party congress, you know, you know, next year, right? I would have assumed that now is the time to make everybody happy. You pump up the stock markets. Right you have to also remember that in China most people's wealth is bound up into their real estate. So if real estate values go down everybody's wealth goes down. It's a very sensitive issue. So and you see how they're playing it out so like they're dinging the companies but they're trying to still keep the actual values of the underlying assets alive. So like they'll make sure that buildings, you know apartment blocks do get finished or somehow figure out a way to make the homeowners whole. So the credit is still the, the key issue, and that's a policy issue. That's a government, that's a political decision. However, things can kind of spin out of control, and that's what we have to watch out. Things that they don't have control over, COVID. How do I predict COVID? How do we pronounce the latest variant? Omicron? Yeah, bite my like We're all going to learn all the letters of the alphabet in Greek by the time this is over, and we're going to be on to Hebrew. And then we're going to start and use Chinese characters. It's just not going to end. And the Chinese were really, again, like thumping their chest. We beat it. The zero of COVID policy works. And then kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. Inflation in the US is because they're shutting down ports in China because of the viral outbreaks. Entire cities are being shut down. Factories are being shut down. How do you predict this? Now, again, it's a combination of natural disaster and policy reaction to it, right? Like you could leave the ports open, or not shut down the cities, we are entering this intense period of uncertainty because they are really squeezing, closing the spigots on this. And actually, you see the markets that everyone's expecting. Like, this is what normally happens. Like, when things get tough, stimulus. Everyone's waiting for stimulus. That's always been the reaction. And you're like, well, look, they're having a big party Congress. They got to do stimulus. They haven't started yet. There's been some signs of like loosening on the edges. But then again, even if they do stimulus and then COVID comes tearing through, and they put everybody in lockdown, stimulus ain't gonna do anything. I mean, I guess you buy a lot of stuff online, but then like, how's your delivery guy gonna be able to get through all the layers of quarantine barriers? This is really a year where it's just so hard to predict the future because there's so much uncertainty that we haven't faced before. It really is a unique set of circumstances, I think.
1: So while all this is happening, one more thing in the Chinese economy, and that came from the information, is that the Chinese ad rates are actually more expensive than the U.S. How did
0: that happen? So there's, I think, a couple of factors. The ads are physically bigger. In the U.S., people tend to buy banner ads. And in China, you buy the flash, you know, full page pop-up thing. There are actually more platforms. There's more ad inventory to buy in the U.S. There's a lot more bigger and small platforms, and not just Google and Facebook, but lots of other places for you to buy ads. Where in China, it's a much more narrow market, really dominated by ByteDance, Alibaba, and Tencent. And so that means more competition. And it's a, it's a very saturated market. The other thing is that the ads, the brands are willing to pay for them. It means that the ROI must be pretty good. People are willing to pay a high price for ads because they're getting a good return on it. The other thing is that I assume that the advertisements were being bought a lot by the Louis Vuittons and the Procter & Gamble's of the world. They certainly are buying ads, but a lot of the ads are being bought by people selling other internet stuff. So all that, all those billions of dollars of VC money are just going in a circle around, right? But video games are a big thing, right? So you, launch, how do you launch a video game? Well, you put you buy ads on other video games for your video game, but right? you can't play it now, right? <laughs> because right, you're only only if, you're 18. if you're older than eighteen, you're okay. You're okay. There's still a bunch of twenty-year-olds pimply 20-year-olds, you know, in the, in the internet cafe and in God knows where, She judge wrong? So that's what's going on. I think that the return on capital must be there. There's also just a lot of capital going in. I'm interested in talking about another subject, which is the
1: presence of global companies in China, or should I just say US companies in China? It is reported in the information that Apple has a secret $275 billion deal with the Chinese authorities over five years. This is just only Apple, but I'm sure the other global companies will probably have their own deals with the Chinese authorities. Is this more general operating model or the cost of doing business
0: in China for global companies? So uh, a lot of that investment, is actually like, this is how much they invest in China because they buy supplies. They manufacture in China. So that means they spend a lot of money to buy stuff in China. They employ millions of people indirectly through Foxconn. They buy raw supplies. That's what that money is. Most of that money is legitimate spending. Other companies have signed MOUs with the Chinese government and announced them quite publicly because it's like, that's what you used to do, right? You used to go in have an MOU at Zhongnanhai or Tai, one of these like Chinese official guest houses or residences or whatever I don't know what you would call them. And you, you bring in your chairman or your CEO, and like and in fact the content of the Apple MOU is pretty anodyne. It's like we pledge to help China develop. It's the kind of stuff that if you signed in 1999 or 2008, people like the reporters would have been like, oh my god, another one of these MOUs. We pledge to you know help you develop your local tech, and that's what the basis of every auto joint venture, for example, is, right? The joint ventures were designed, if you read Beijing Jeep, right? The classic story about Zhurongji Jeep and, 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 and Beijing Jeep. They were designed to like get foreign tech and technology transfer and everyone agree, like good, we will help China develop. And so a lot of what it's in that MOU was kind of in that same spirit. Okay, China, we, we're here, we, we're, we support your growth. We're going to invest, continue to invest more. And a lot of that investment is like, yeah, we buy your supplies here, but also we will set up an R&D center, support colleges, bells and whistles. The problem is for Apple, they didn't announce it. As I said, like other companies would routinely have like, made like you bring in the photographers and you get the handshake photo. And, but again, like the, the, the issue is the context 2016 was kind of like the beginning of the trade war and this rising cold tech war that people are talking about, where people were waking up to the fact that like, for the past couple of decades, yeah, Americans got a lot of cheap consumer goods and electronics, but they hollowed out their own industry. So that's the trade. And people suddenly woke up and said, like, well, wait a second. We don't have any manufacturing base anymore. We actually, my colleague, Wayne Ma, literally wrote a story about, like, how a a layer of, like, certain types of engineers who, like, know, like, enameling and machine tooling and all that stuff don't exist anymore. We we have the Johnny Ives, the super clever designers, but we don't have the people who know how to, like, make stuff because we've exported all that know-how to China. And we did it because they made it cheaper than us and Americans wanted to buy cheaper stuff. So that's the broader context of that. I I think Western companies make concessions to operate in China, some of which are totally understandable and legitimate, some of which are questionable. I saw these stories about Amazon and the Kindle reviews. And I think some of the, you know, Amazon removed the ability to review certain books. I think one of Xi Jinping's books, like, I think the problem is that companies go too far. You lose sight of of what you're trying to do. And I think even like websites
1: like LinkedIn has now become just a job spot rather than the social network. Yeah.
0: So, okay. Microsoft, this is a big conundrum to me. I don't get it because they spent years trying to crack the China market, right? I remember when I was in China, you'd buy a, a desktop. This is going back, you know, 2005 everything was pirated nothing was licensed i had microsoft windows and this and that and excel by market share microsoft had like 90% but zero revenue right piracy was rampant and microsoft really did everything to try to like win over china microsoft's r&d centers in china are are world class they produce world class research particularly on machine vision right some of the best and most important papers on machine vision and natural language processing have come out of the R and D centers of Microsoft. And in fact, the people who've gone through those, the R and D centers have gone on to be leaders, both in the U S and in Chinese startups, right? They have really seeded just an important center of learning. And Microsoft going back years ago, opened up its source code to the Chinese. And then was it was at 2017 or 2018, try to create a special version of windows just for the government because they're concerned about backdoors and all, all this stuff. And yet in the past year, several times Microsoft has come out publicly and been like China's behind state-sponsored hacking. The email server hack, Microsoft is the one that fingered China. Most recently, more recently, Microsoft, with a court order, seized dozens of websites that it said were behind state-sponsored hacking of corporate and government targets and basically accused the Chinese. Now, what an about face is that? Like, how, how do you go from working so hard to court the Chinese to basically saying, guys, I mean, it's just, it's just shocking to me. So in that context, for them to say LinkedIn, forget about it. They used to be accused of like caving in, but now they seem to be doing the exact opposite. I'm I'm, I'm just, I don't know what's behind that shift. I don't quite understand it. I don't know how it's, it's going to play out. Yeah. December 6th, Microsoft seizes 42 websites from Chinese hacking group. And it's Microsoft saying, oh, these are state-sponsored hackers. So you, you can't imagine that in Beijing. They're reading that and saying, hey, hey Bill Gates' company, he's accusing us of hacking. Let's give him more contracts. No.
1: How will Chinese leverage their position against US companies given such all this anti-China attitude from the US government? It's kind of like the companies are all being now in Catch-22. They better start de-risking themselves because they are going to be caught in a
0: pretty big crossfire at some point. Intel is a great example. So for a while, they've said like, you know we don't buy stuff from Xinjiang, right? Because Xinjiang has the issues of forced labor and the allegations of genocide and the human rights abuse with the Uyghur Muslim minority. There's actually laws now in the States about this. So Intel has for a long time said like, we don't source from, from Xinjiang. Somehow, though, today, it's become like a big issue. And the Chinese are now accusing Intel of being an evil company and all that stuff. And so I don't know how companies will thread the needle between the pressure from the U.S. politicians and and, and others versus this. The other thing that's happening in China is this very, very passionate nationalism. I don't want to say some say virulent. You could say passionate, whatever you want to call it. Certainly nationalism is a a very strong emotion these days in China and the Olympics coming up. I think it's going to be a real big flashpoint where how companies choose to portray themselves or support or not support what's happening. So we have gone through a really
1: turbulent 2021, which I don't know whether it's a year of great significance or a year of no significance. What are your predictions for China next year in 2022?
0: I can honestly say I've never been more cloudy about the future than this year. We're facing a major transition with Xi Jinping with an unprecedented third term as the party chairman. Should be a smooth transition, but there's all these rumblings and rumors. We're still facing, we're in the third year now of COVID, crying out loud. Inflation is coming out of no, you know, is biting everybody. So I just don't, like, I, I, big company, you know, things that will still happen. Unicorns will be minted. There will be, I think, a Chinese software company that becomes globally important. Enterprise, a Chinese enterprise company that will, will be important. Not just consumer-facing. But the broader picture to me is just so unclear. It's so unclear.
1: But do you see maybe things will start to shift
0: once the party congress is over? Yes. So once, assuming that Xi Jinping is safely, gets his next five-year term. I thought it's a given. So I'm not sure. That's the crazy thing is I hear a lot of rumblings and whispers and it's just noise at this point, right? Like There's always going to be rumblings and whispers. But the problem is that everyone assumes that everything is super stable and solid until it's not. The Soviet Union was, it's either strong or it's brittle. And I don't know if China is strong or if it's brittle.
1: Shine, many thanks for coming on the show. I guess that's very difficult to make predictions next year, but we will definitely get you back because the seven year is there. And I just only have last two questions. Anything that have recently inspired you that you want to give a recommendation on?
0: Oh my goodness. You asked me that earlier, and I'm still working. I think I'm still reading the same book I was reading earlier, which is a biography of the city of Jerusalem. And it's inspiring because it makes me so happy that I live now because things were so messed up back in the day. You know, I talk about like wars and instability and revolution and plagues. Man, we have it so easy compared to how it used to be a thousand years ago. So if you want to feel good about living in this current era, read some history, read the biography of Jerusalem. Everyone's been reading Sapiens. I'm finally getting around to it. This is, of course, uh, Yuval Noah Harari and Homo Deus by uh, Noah Harari as well. And I'm reading Sapiens just as a way to figure out what the heck all the the Silicon Valley types have been thinking about uh, because they all read those books. And it's clearly, when you read these books, you're like, oh, I see so many of the signs of management technique being taken from this book. So how do my audience find you? Smoke Signals, Fax, Telex. Oh, and email. Shai, S-H-A-I, at theinformation.com. Our website is theinformation.com. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, It's at Beijing Scribe, like a writing scribe. And my DMs are open, as they say. (laughs) Okay, Shai, many
1: thanks for coming on the show. And of course, you can Google us anywhere. We are found on every major podcast platform. Please Give me an iTunes five stars and a review. That's all I'm asking for. And to everyone, have a happy new year. And next
0: year is going to be very exciting. Thank you, Shai. All right, take it easy.